Welcome to Insights from Rain. I'm Emily Donahue. Back in July 2006, as an aggressive strain of the flu was making its way across Asia and the Middle East, New York City unveiled its pandemic preparedness plan. As then Deputy Commissioner of Health at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, Dr. Isaac Weisfuse was part of the team that prepared the report for Mayor Bloomberg. Looking back, Weisfuse identified a number of the current issues, including that during a widespread pandemic, the federal government would not be in a position to step in and that New York City, a high-risk area, would largely be on its own, including the need to rely on its own stockpile of critical supplies like ventilators. In this podcast, RAIN founder David Lawrence speaks with Dr. Weisfuse to discuss his perspectives on the current pandemic and the lessons learned from his experience in New York. Let's listen. Isaac, uh, first of all, a great privilege and honor to be able to have a conversation with you, uh, particularly at this point in time. And as uh, we indicated from the introduction, um, you have a considerable body of work in the public service. Uh, part of the message of, I think, that has to be gleaned from the current pandemic is uh, the importance of learning a variety of lessons and not forgetting them. Uh, I'll note Governor Cuomo in his most recent uh, press conferences past Sunday was emphasizing uh, precisely that point as he had a number of the other governors on from New Jersey and Connecticut and uh, Delaware and Maryland. And, uh, you know, all the while, uh, as we're continuing to deal with uh, COVID-19, there are important lessons uh, that can be incorporated along the way. So uh, with that in mind, it's a particular privilege to be able to speak with you. So approximately, uh, you know, 14 years ago, you yeah. spearheaded a um, a incredibly comprehensive survey that mm-hmm. if I were to recite it now on this podcast and ask people yeah. to try to say, was this from 2006 or 2020, they'd be hard-pressed uh, to discern when it was uh, issued. But uh, mm-hmm. so much of what is now occurring uh, was foretold in your report to the city of New York. And I thought maybe we could just start with an overview about your efforts and sort of what you you and others saw and the report, the, the very, very comprehensive report that uh, you created. Sure. So um, at that time when we created the report, which was probably around 2005, 2006, um, all public health workers and epidemiologists were really concerned about avian influenza, which had cropped up in uh, Southeast Asia and uh, was spread from, you know, birds, uh, domesticated fowl to people, had a high death rate. And there was some but limited transmission from person to person, usually in the setting of uh, a family. So if, uh, say, a farmer got infected, he may uh, infect other people in his family. And there was a lot of concern that because it had, you know, potential for spread, that um, there might be some sort of, uh, you know, enhanced transmission to people. And again, it was a strain of influenza that was not seen before, so everybody was susceptible. But there were, seemed to be some breaks on transmission, but the thought was if there was some sort of mutation, um, it could be transmitted um, very readily. 
So uh, with that in mind, um, the U.S. government really um, put together um, a pandemic planning uh, plan and asked health departments to consider pandemics um, as uh, a priority for uh, planning purposes. Now, part of that was looking back at the past and looking back at what the experience was for uh, prior pandemics. So we looked at the pandemics of 1918, which was Spanish influenza, as well as the pandemics of 1957 and 1968. So what jumped out is that the Spanish influenza outbreak was really catastrophic. It had a, um, nobody really knows exactly how many people died, but the estimates range from 50 to 100 million people uh, all over the world. And it looks like it had a case fatality rate estimated of about 2.0, which is, so two out of every 100 people who got it uh, ended up dying from the virus. So that was the worst case scenario. And then 1957 and 1968 were not good, but they were certainly not as severe. So that was sort of the, the, the more, the less severe scenario. So we looked at those three and we tried to decide um, you know, what will be the impact on the United States and, and for me, the impact on New York City in, in any of those models. So we tried to understand that and um, CDC was good enough to come up with some algorithms that allowed us to make a, a guesstimate of um, the needs for things like hospital beds or uh, for ventilators, um, depending on the scenario we were looking at. So we did that, and we also did an assessment of what was going on in the city at the moment because we really didn't have good information on, uh, for example, on ventilator usage. Um, and it gets to be kind of complicated. So we, we ended up doing a survey, and not only did we have to know what kind of ventilators there were out there, how many, but what kind as well, since ventilators uh, vary in complexity. There are some that have lots of bells and whistles, such as the ventilators in an operating room, and some are kind of more utilitarian and can be, for example, on ambulances. So we needed to not only know the number and who had what, but, you know, what kind as well. So based on that and based on some of the algorithms that we got from CDC, we saw that we would be short on ventilators for a 1918-style pandemic. Uh, in other words, a severe uh, outbreak. So, you know, we thought about that. So what, you know, what should we do? We, we weren't really prepared, and we made a couple of assumptions. Number one, that in the setting of uh, a big pandemic, we weren't really going to get a lot of help from outside of New York City or New York State. So let me, uh, you know, unpack that a little bit. You know, if there's an event like an explosion or something like World Trade Center, which is localized, so World Trade Center, there were problems in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Shankville, Pennsylvania, um, we can feel pretty confident that whatever in New York City we needed, we would get, because there was kind of a limited scope, and um, that we had worked out policies and procedures with the federal government to receive their aid, um, but they didn't have to cover the entire country. So it wasn't as if we had to com really compete with um, other jurisdictions for some of the materials that we might need. 
So similarly, if there was an explosive event in New York City or some other event, presumably, you know, we would get our needs covered if there were material or people that we, that we desperately needed. But a pandemic is different because it's going to be all over the country. And so you have to, you know, figure that the federal government is going to spread out its supplies, its personnel, um, and its attention over many, many jurisdictions, and New York City may not be at the top of that list, or we would be competing with other jurisdictions at the very least. So we decided to make the assumption that we would get zero help from the federal government. Now, I'm I'm not sure if that was really, you know, realistic, that, you know, we could have gotten help, but just for argument's sake, we decided that we would look at it as if we were facing this alone, that um, although, you know, certainly there, there might be some help, we weren't going to count on it. So with that as background, we decided looking at the ventilators as an example, um, we were short. And so we decided to purchase ventilators. And we went through this whole, a whole big, um, ventilators are, are expensive, expensive pieces of equipment. And we didn't have unlimited funds, so we really had to decide what was the um, ventilator of choice for the particular need. And the need was um, for patients with respiratory failure, um, with acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. And what was essentially the one we can um, purchase that wouldn't break the bank but still fulfill the need of these patients. So we did a lot of uh, due diligence and uh, found something that satisfied our needs, and we bought some. Now, the amount that we bought was clearly not enough to um, deal with the 1918 uh, kind of uh, problem, but we thought it chipped away at it. Um, And so we thought we put a dent in the problem rather than solved it. So the question becomes, why didn't we just solve it? And Part of the answer for that is that we were trying to cover a number of different scenarios, influenza being one of them, but we were also worried about anthrax and radiation problems. And so we tried to cover our bases in terms of trying to address at least some of the problem with these other entities. And there's always a juggling act between how much money do you spend on one scenario versus another, um, given the fact that we don't know which one is going to come up. Um, and obviously, for a long time, in New York City, anthrax and bioterrorism were clearly um, big, big um, priorities. So we had to spread the wealth a little bit and make a determination that we couldn't necessarily solve every problem, but we could put a dent into it, and that's what we ended up doing as an example with the ventilators. So I've gone on for a while, but um, I think that tries to explain a little bit of how we were um, going about the whole thought process. Uh, it's a great overview, and uh, you obviously referenced a collaboration uh, involving CDC and some of the names of the people who are involved in the current pandemic. I know we're uh, part of this effort uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, for the benefit of the audience, we'll be providing a link to the report itself, but the issues you identified were obviously about the, the unique density of New York City, the diversity of the population, the diversity of the people who come to visit New York, 
mm -hmm. uh, the hospital system itself and how it's organized, and the logistical challenges, um, both in terms of what you would need in terms of resources, equipment, trained expertise, mm -hmm. and the delivery of that. And uh, perhaps most uh, relevantly for this situation uh, was the conclusion that the federal government would be um, ill-situated to be of meaningful assistance to the city so that it would be uh, the consequences and the responsibilities would fall uh, to city government. And uh, all of which is, you know, somewhat remarkably playing out uh, and has played out over the last two months. And so as you think about some of the lessons here, and I want to emphasize for the audience, this is not a blame game. 2020 um, vision is always, you know, obtained in the rearview mirror of hindsight. Um, but there were a lot of, uh, obviously, competing considerations in running a city that one had to worry about. But nonetheless, there was the foresight not only to identify, we'll call it, you know, you were worried about avian flu at the time, but the global risk of pandemics, looking back at history to see what had happened before, the models that were could be deployed to understand what the impact could be in the spread of the contagions. And a very comprehensive um, plan was was basically put in written form to identify the issues, to identify why New York was particularly vulnerable, and to identify what would be needed to not to obviate this completely, but to manage through it with the least possible consequences. And so as you think about the lessons that one might take away from today's environment and the work you did 14, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and sort of if you were writing the blueprint now, Isaac, of what people should be thinking about and how to, how to be smarter stewards about the risks, what would be some of the points you'd be sharing with people? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the, the issue that happened this time is that we didn't react in the proper way at the proper time. Um, and we could dissect why or why not that, that happened, but you need to be, um, you need to be fast um, to prevent transmission. As an example, it was pretty obvious in mid-January or late January that there was a very serious problem occurring in Wuhan, China. You had a massive outbreak of a viral respiratory agent for which there was no uh, pre-existing immunity because nobody had ever seen the agent before. And that is really the setup for a catastrophe. Um, so once you saw thousands, uh, just a remarkable outbreak. Now, I don't know if we got all the correct numbers at the correct time, but there was a remarkably fast-moving outbreak going on. And we always assumed in New York City that you can't really keep a virus from New York City. We always went under the assumption that um, if there's a virus anywhere in the world, it can get to New York City within 24 to 48 hours, given transportation pattern and, and the fact that we're an international city. So I think we need to go go back to some of the basics, um, this, you know, about the status of, the, of New York City um, in terms of disease transmission across the world, in terms of learning from what's going on around us. 
um, and in terms of acting uh, more 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 precipitously in interventions. And uh, I think uh, we'll at some point we'll take a look back at this, and we may wonder um, did we did we really hit those marks or not? So looking forward, I think we need to understand our uh, unique um, vulnerabilities and also the uniqueness of our healthcare system and how we will need to be a little bit more self-sufficient going forward in case there's another big outbreak. If I could use that um, just a jumping off point because among the lessons we're certainly learning is um, around this pandemic risk is it, it, while New York may be at the epicenter, we're hardly alone. Uh, there have been some very profound implications across the country. You're looking at the devastation of entire industries, the travel industry, the hospitality industry. We're now looking at tremendous pressures on our food supply chain. How should I say the vulnerabilities of our pharmaceutical and equipment manufacturing supply chains around the world. All these things are, you know, coming to the forefront as a result of this uh, pandemic. And I sort of found you had identified the importance of thinking through first, second, third, fourth order of consequences, both in terms of what would be needed, what might be the challenges of the delivery, the challenges of training, Obviously, the report was focused on New York. It wasn't looking at the national security or national economy implications mm -hmm. here. But as you think through this, uh, obviously, speed of action is important. There have been a number of reports about, we'll call it the failure to disclose or less than full and complete accurate information coming out of China, but nonetheless, a lot of warnings being there. And right. certainly, the segmentation of the population. There are one thing that you know certainly comes out, and you know as we think about planning going into the future, everyone is affected by this, but not everyone has been affected equally. Right. Um, there have been age distinctions, there have been income distinctions, there have been geographic distinctions within the city, racial distinctions, and of course you know the issues of first line responders. Maybe you could unpack. Um, your report 2.0 about preparing for what people now say is not a matter of if, but it's just sort of when and right. how bad it will be. What might be needed here if you were writing the updated version of your report? Well, first of all, um, I think that you need uh, multiple options. Um, it's not enough to have a plan A. Sometimes you have to have a plan A, B, or C. And so um, thinking, because things don't go, they never really go uh, the way you might hope they would in an emergency. And you have to be flexible enough to know what your options are and what you're going to do about them, when to switch from one option to the next. And I think, sadly, this whole issue of the testing, uh, you know, mess that occurred um, didn't feel like they had an option B when option A uh, sort of uh, didn't, didn't quite work. In addition, when you're thinking about um, a city like New York City, which has such uh, a tremendous variations in populations and in neighborhoods, you have to think uh, to some degree, how are you going to help the worst off in society? 
Um, pandemics or other problems um, hit poor communities harder than they do more wealthy communities because there's a greater um, need in terms of baseline health issues in those communities. Um, for something like a pandemic, uh, poverty is an important influence in that people who work at some of the jobs can't, can't work from home. Um, and they tend to, you know, need to have that kind of uh, support uh, monetarily. So um, it's really not – I think a lot of the issues that have befell us were not particularly surprising, which I think is also something that is, um, is, a, is a problem. I mean, I, I think that we didn't really know when this was going to happen, and we didn't necessarily know where it would happen. But um, once it started, I think a lot of the issues and a lot of the um, secondary consequences were, were reasonably predictable. So I think by, you know, by histor historical uh, information. So, for example, the issue of nursing homes. Nursing homes, uh, you know, of having really nothing short of a catastrophic experience now. But we know that nursing homes have been a problem in terms of seasonal influenza for many years. Um, there have been large nursing home outbreaks. Now, luckily, many seasonal influenzas are not as deadly as COVID-19. So, in a sense, we, um, you know, dealt with them. Also, we had, you know, a vaccine. We had some antivirals. So, we were able to intervene. But the fact is, there's a long history of influenza being a problem in nursing homes. So, it's not really all that surprising that a novel agent that's transmitted the same way um, is going to be a huge problem there as well. Um, similarly, jails. Jails are um, places where people are kind of stacked together uh, pretty closely. So not, not terribly surprising that in a jail environment, you're going to have big transmission of uh, a respiratory agent. So I, I think when you look at some of the consequences that have, um, you know, sort of bowled us over to some degree, uh, they were pretty predictable. Not everything, but um, some of the transmission uh, dynamics and who was most at risk, I think, um, was was sort of laid out on the table, but we may not have always taken advantage of that knowledge. And as we talk about the knowledge, the quote about the first casualty in war is the truth. And what has certainly come up in this is, you know, the need for not only policymakers, but the general public to have the sources of expertise and information that they actually can rely upon. And by the way, this is not a, this is not a finger pointing exercise by any means. Right. Because, right. you know, very much trying to change the wheels on a, on a car that's moving at 60 miles an hour where you have less yep. than perfect transparency. Nonetheless, there is so many waves and currents of misinformation, and some of which is purposeful for financial gain. Some of it is mischievous. Some of it, quite frankly, is state-sponsored and meant to drive further lines of division in our society. And so I'm just curious, you know, which is was not a focus of your report about you were focused on, you know, the, the blocking and tackling of, delivering medical support and emergency response. But as you think about, you know, the information war and the behavioral components around 
uh, the current crisis. What suggestions might you have, again, for this, the 2.0 version of your report? You know, my observation, and I don't think this is terribly shocking, is that uh, politicians don't want emergencies to happen. They really, um, that you know, they want to be, um, you know, made sure that, you know, agencies or other institutions, uh, you know, act uh, carefully to avoid emergencies. However, when an emergency happens, they see it almost as an opportunity to display their leadership um, and their ability to master a complex uh, unfolding situation. And I think that some of that is good. I mean, I think this, that, the fact that they aspire to that, I think, is, is a good thing. However, um, let's take an analogy. Let's say there was a big fire in, you know, midtown Manhattan. Although you may want the politicians to say, you know, something about that fire, you wouldn't want them um, telling the firefighters what to do. You wouldn't say, no, 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 don't go on that floor or go on this floor. I mean, you know, they're not an expert in firefighting, and you want to rely on the people whose expertise has been their entire career to, like, figure out how to put out fires. You want them there to do that. And similarly on public health issues, although there are profound economic and social consequences of decisions, the baseline decisions should be left to experts. Um, and I think that perhaps politicians in some cases have taken that idea of using this as an opportunity and uh, because they're, you know, and, and looked at it from the perspective is I am an expert um, because I need to um, exert my, my leadership um, and show people I can make these decisions. But you still have to make the right decisions. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that you can just, um, you know, uh, talk about it in theory. You know, it, it's okay to look strong and uh, like a great leader, but you still got to make the right decisions. And the right decisions, um, you, you want to listen very, very carefully to the experts who spent their entire careers um, looking at these issues. And so when you stray from that, um, you're really getting to a point where big, you know, big problems can happen. So I think one issue is I think we need to, um, all of us, revise our idea of uh, what uh, good political leadership during a crisis uh, may mean. Uh, so that's very, very important because that sets the tone for, you know, m much of the coverage, the media, the internet, um, social media uh, that occurs. Um, I think also we need to, to some degree, make sure that uh, that the right information goes out, goes out in many different ways, uh, goes out repeatedly, so it's not just a one-time thing. Make sure that, you know, we make uh, special outreach to vulnerable populations to make sure they understand what's going on, what the risk factors are, make sure it's in their language. Um, you know, we have 70 or 80 languages in New York City, um, and, and people consume news in different ways, uh, so you have to be sensitive to that. Um, so it, it gets to be a complicated issue, but I think it begins at the top. If you have good information at the top, 
the ability for the message to drift off into strange directions probably gets, you know, a little less. It's a great point. Uh, let me go back uh, to the year 2006, but, you know, let's follow every year going forward. The warnings were there about the potential for a pandemic risk, but mm-hmm. there are always trade-offs that have to be made within all administrations, whether it's city level, state level, federal level. There's a great quote by uh, the Hall of Fame hockey player Wayne Gretzky about he didn't want to skate to where the puck was or is. He wanted to skate to where the puck was going. And it's very, very tough because there are trade-offs that all leaders have to make with budgetary constraints and, you know, what appears to be, you know, necessary. And no less important uh, are re-election campaigns uh, around this. One of the observations that I'd actually love to get your, your view on is when it comes to preparing for these types of issues, and again, they're, you know, all politics may be local, but there's certainly a national and global <laughs> contagion these days. Sure. Is how do we begin to make the right choices? How do we begin to prioritize in a environment where, you know, funding is not unlimited, resources mm-hmm. are not unlimited, talent is not unlimited? Part of making that decision, of course, is understanding the true costs behind what you're, you're not doing approximately 12 years past the financial crisis and what had to be done to save, you know, the global economy. The true costs of not being prepared for the pandemic are, are, are being shown. And so how, how do we begin to maybe come up with a better way for making decisions and prioritizing and triaging and sort of figuring out what do we have to be prepared for in what order and what are the resources, and what are the real costs of not being prepared? Yeah, so what we tend to do is we tend to focus on the last bad thing that happened. So, you know, after anthrax attack in 2001, we focused on bioterrorism. After SARS in 2003, we focused on novel agents. Um, You know, after Hurricane Sandy, we looked at uh, climate-induced uh, problems and abilities of, of people and healthcare to uh, survive uh, electrical outages. Um, so we tend to focus on, on the last thing that happens. And, you know, clearly that there needs to be some focus on the last thing that happens because that's how you learn about what to do differently. So I think there always needs to be some focus on that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the next crisis is going to be the exact same thing. So part of the challenge is to institutionalize some of the uh, lessons that you learn um, without losing focus on, you know, the, the you know higher priority issues um, or uh, more consequential issues. There is a process within the federal government of actually every, I believe, two years looking at threats and prioritizing them. Um, it's something that doesn't get a lot of um, a lot of discussion, I think, outside the federal government, but in in um, there there is a process and I, I wonder to what degree they um, sort of open up that process and talk about threats. So some of them are maybe military threats, but they also include um, 
you know, some public health threats. And I think perhaps that ought to be more of an open process because there are people who are thinking about it, but um, again, it doesn't get a lot of um, a lot of uh, input, perhaps, from uh, you know the non-federal um, part of the government and from people themselves. So I think we have to look at it as you know, to some degree, as insurance. Um, you can't cover every possible crisis, but you can build a good foundation so that um, even and that can be flexible. Um, and then that can be there to react to whatever the nuance is or whatever the change in the agent is. And what happened after 2001 is that there was a great deal of funding that went out to health departments um, to do exactly that. Um, health departments got sort of whipsawed from one problem to the next, but there was a baseline that was established. And what happened over the time, which is sort of the the long-term, uh, you know, uh, policy problems of public health is that that funding went down. So you had um, more things to do because more emergencies uh, emerged, but you had less resources to do them. And that's sadly the tale of public health in the United States is very much that you um, be able, you, you get funding, you're able to accomplish dealing with the problem. Um, and then people realize why are we funding this? They decrease the funding, then the problem comes back. And there, you know, examples of that. And I, I think that we need to have a better grasp of what are the foundations that we want states and local health departments to have in order to react to whatever the crisis of the moment. Um, so that we have kind of a little bit of an insurance policy. So because we can't predict what the future will bring but we can uh, hopefully predict um, the kind of resources that we can bring to a problem. Um, I also think there needs to be, uh, you know, the strategic national stockpile became sort of a political issue, uh, oddly enough, in, in this um, outbreak or this pandemic. Um, but there again, you know, what do you decide to buy? How much of it do you decide to uh, buy? There are some committees that look at that, but I don't really know if they get, you know, the uh, outside of government perspective on those issues. Um, so all, those are all decisions uh, that have to be re-looked at and, and made going forward. A solid foundation for response and having enough equipment and supplies in, in um, a reasonable way to deal with a situation and worrying about supply chains. Um, and worrying about, you know, domestic manufacturing is a part of that as well. And I don't think we've really had to struggle with those issues, but I think we need to now. The few minutes we have left, let me throw a question out to you. Sure. Because some very, very smart uh, professors at one of the leading business schools showed me some statistics about hurricane insurance and the purchase of hurricane insurance spikes or hurricane actually in flood. It's always after the disaster. And then, you know, if nothing happens for a year and a half, two years, people let their policies lapse. And they have the mm -hmm. statistics on this. And I guess the, the question I have from, I'll do the, the Gretzky metaphor. We, we skate to where the puck is or was, sometimes at the cost of where, where, where it might be going. The real question that this seems to pose time after time after time is whether it takes a crisis to get us to focus on what we actually knew beforehand. But if that is the case, what do you think it would take to realign 
uh, that process. Well, this this may sound very old-fashioned, and it probably is, but I think we all need to um, adopt some uh, civic responsibilities. And what I mean by all, I'm not just talking about individuals. I'm talking about um, institutions. I'm talking about companies. I mean, when you think about all the different companies that had some oversight over the opioid problem, um, you know, you have to ask yourself, they saw this happening. Why didn't somebody, you know, press the panic button and say this is wrong? And I think we need to um, go – I don't know if we ever had that in the country, but I think we need to um, go, you know, encourage that. Um, and I do think that people have that feeling of civic obligation, but I feel that many more don't. And, again, many, um, you know, we're, we're mixing up. Um, economics and obligations and supply chains and, um, you know, I think that we <laughs> owe, owe uh, something to our fellow man, uh, especially, uh, you know, in our own state or our, our own country. So that may seem very old-fashioned, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's a way of thinking of things that we're kind of all in this world together. And, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, I can't, I can't escape from that. I mean, I, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the perspective that my parents gave me, and I think that uh, it's unfortunately maybe been muddled over time. Um, but I do think a crisis, in, in, you know, less philosophical terms, does help focus your attention, um, and I think there are some structural things we can do. Uh, for example, about supply chains and vaccine manufacturing, uh, et cetera, that will help us in the future, regardless of one's, uh, you know, uh, philosophical leanings. Um, and I think that those should be done. I think that we, you know, we're going to come up against the vaccine crisis. If we do get a good vaccine, it's going to be, you know, how much can we, how, you know, how long does it take to manufacture it, um, who's going to get it first, et cetera. And I think some of those things are, you know, may not be able to be solvable in the short term, but it may be that we can build toward resolving some of those problems in the future um, through some, you know, money and effort on behalf of the government to realize that this could come back, this could be our future, um, and we need to make some some real decision making about, you know, how to how to deal with it in the future. So. I'm combining both the philosophical as well as the, um, you know, structural things that I think we can do to, to help us better uh, address these problems in the future. And then I think that, you know, one issue in general is health equity. I mean, to the degree that we have sizable populations in the United States who suffer from poor health, any, um, any aberration or any problem, whether it be an earthquake or a hurricane or flooding or a pandemic, is going to impact that, that, those groups in a, uh, in a worse way. So um, fixing that is also a long-term thing that I think benefits everyone. Isaac, thanks for both medical, pragmatic, and philosophical insights <laughs> here. So this has been a terrific conversation. Uh, we didn't even get into the points of uh, what happens when we have a vaccine and there's a anti-vaccine movement. As an editorial um, comment about uh, what we owe each other, 
uh, I would also add we owe to our children and grandchildren as well. Yes. As a uh, final note, Isaac, I don't want to leave without thanking you for your continued public service. As with many of the professionals, whether they're in the medical space, law enforcement, intelligence community, business communities, et cetera, very often people are speaking about what needs to be done, actually showing the way. Isaac, you're a little bit unique in that you produced a 260-page uh, report <laughs> Uh, around, around this, and particularly unique in an age of uh, we'll call it tweets and text messages and right. sound bites. Maybe our problems are not nearly as intractable as they seem. It's just we've had a certain intractability about how we access the insights, the intellectual leaders, the people who are really focused on problem solving and what they're trying to tell us. So hopefully we can all do uh, a better job at that. And that, of course, is in part uh, the thesis and the mission that we have at the Risk Assistance Network in exchange. And Isaac, thanks so much for being part of the network and sharing your insights, your experience, your thoughts, and a conversation to be continued. Stay safe. Okay. You're welcome. I, I enjoyed the conversation and uh, hopefully it gives some people some, some things to think about. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, Go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the daily risk book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.